So today we're continuing with our long series, Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. This is actually the 45th message, and this is element 5Y out of the eight elements we're looking at. So, um, some of you who are paying attention may realize that we did element 5Y last week, and, uh, that, and we're doing it again, and it has a similar title. I decided two things about last week's message. One is that uh, I, I bit off more than I could chew in, one, in uh, one week, so to speak. So we actually decided we're not even going to post the podcast from last week. Emily's going to take it down today when she gets this one or in the next day or two. And we're just going to replace it with this one. And I'm going to try to do about half as much as I... Uh, last week, if you noticed, that we were talking about the purposes, and, uh, the promises and purposes of Pentecost... I think we're just going to try to do the promises and do it a little better. So uh, I can't review much. For those of you who are new, the eight essential elements we're looking at are under Roman numeral one there. Uh, we did several weeks under introduction to zero about why both proclamation and lifestyle evangelism need to both be practiced by the church. Uh, you know, why uh, we dealt with the concept of pre-evangelism and, and understanding whether your audience is pre-evangelized or not, and so, a lot of concepts like that. Then we went right into uh, the attributes of God, the attributes of man, the Ten Commandments, and so forth. I can't really review all that. Uh, we tried to emphasize, as I always do, a number of things that are not usually emphasized in contemporary evangelical circles, such as uh, we tried to look at a much deeper view of the sin nature of man, so be, which is necessary to really understand the depths of grace. And so uh, you didn't just uh, need Christ to come into your life uh, to get help you uh, be reformed and get a little churching up. You needed rescued, you needed recreated, you needed a total do-over. So, and uh, so that kind of thing. So in element five, we've been looking at Jesus Christ, the only mediator, and it always comes down to this. I was helping someone this week uh, who's trying to minister to some relatives that are Mormons. And they were also kind of comparing some things to, of Mormonism to Islam. And we looked at like five things you always look at with false religions. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrines of Christology. Uh, all false religions have a, an alternate book. They have a different view of eternal judgment. And, and so forth. We looked at these kinds of things. Uh, they have a different doctrine of the nature of man. For instance, Mormons believe that you are God, and you just didn't realize it yet. <laughs> and uh, it's really pretty much the same line as the serpent used in Genesis 3. You will be God yourself, determining for yourself. And Jesus, when they say Jesus is God, what they mean by it is Jesus is one of the first human beings like Buddha and others that realize that we're all gods. <laughs> and so they, they use a lot of Christian terminology with quite different meanings. So um, that is being said just to say this. Jesus said to his disciples in, the, in a message you should go back and look at the, on the podcast, when Jesus took the disciples, uh, one of the few times he took them out of Israel, he took them north to Caesarea Philippi, and he did it on purpose because he took him to a place that was called the Gates of Hades. And he said, who do people say that I am? And that's a question. But then he focused the question, who do you say that I am? And it always gets down to, frankly, everything always gets down to who do you say that I am? And uh, upon Peter's confession, 
He basically said, I'm going to build my church, a new called out assembly in contradistinction to Moses's called out assembly. And rather than uh, for refusing to, to uh, fulfill the mission that in, all, in you all nations of the world will be blessed, the Israelites were constantly judged by God from, for holding the kingdom to themselves and hating their neighbors and not, and not being the missional people they were supposed to be. And Jesus takes them to the to the gates of Hades on purpose to say, you're going to go right into, the, you know, I wish I could go into all of what goes on there that was a very pagan, idolatrous, horrible, wicked place. And he's basically saying, you're going to attack the gates of hell and you're going, you're going to liberate people. And uh, it's going to be a whole different kind of called out assembly. And uh, if you if that stuff's new to you and you want to think about it more, we did a whole message on it's on the podcast and we can help you find it. Any, anybody that's in the, you know, been around here a while can help you find it. So then we've been looking at Christology now for uh, 25 weeks. And uh, so, and we're going we're gonna to limit ourselves to next week is uh, part Z. So I'm limiting myself to 26 weeks because I don't want to have to start finding a way to go through the alphabet more. Although I might go part five asterisk or part five exclamation point or part five pound sign or something. My, my wire is all messed up back here. So, all right, we'll see. So uh, in the first eight or so uh, on Christology, we looked at the things that you would traditionally be looked at in terms of Christology uh, and since then, we've been looking at the ministry of Jesus, which is often neglected, in, in, at least in systematic theology classes or classes on Christology. And part of the reason you should read the Gospels over and over and over and over again is because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, because his ministry continues the same. That was the whole point of what he, of John's version of the Passover Supper, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. He didn't go to prepare a place in the sense of heaven as they teach today. But, he, but there are many dwelling places in my father's oikodemeo, in his household, in his business, in the, in the kingdom of God. I, I am going to not leave you as orphans, but I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to continue the ministry that I have. And it's going to continue the same uh, into the ends of the ages. So today we're going to uh, do the second to last message on the, on the ministry of Jesus and how it continues. And we're going to look at the ministry of Jesus as the baptizer in the Holy Spirit or the fulfillment of a major New Testament theme called the promise. And that that's, is sometimes worded as promises, but all the promises actually fold into one great eternal promise. So uh, that's the purpose of why the S is in brackets. So we're going to look at the promises of Pentecost and what it's all about. Now, the first thing I want you to help you understand is the, the concept of the promise is a major interpretive theme of the New Testament continued from the Jewish scriptures. If you remember, this is Easter Sunday, and you remember on Easter Sunday in Luke's version of it, uh, Jesus appears three times. First uh, to the women at the tomb, uh, although Luke d doesn't go into that as much as a couple of the other gospel writers. Uh, then down to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then to the disciples in the upper room. And in the second and third encounter, he stresses 
uh, he opens their mind to understand the scriptures. As, as Paul says clearly in, in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians, I guess it is. I always forget. 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians 3. On the 2 Corinthians 3, he says that a veil lies over the heart of Israel to this day uh, when they read the Old Covenant because the veil is removed in Christ. Christ is the interpretive principle of the Old Testament. Uh, and what Paul really did and, and, and the other apostles is they rethought the entire Old Testament in light of what it had always been saying about Christ, but was revealed as it was, was hidden as a mystery until God was prepared to reveal it in Christ. So the, the concept of the promise uh, is, is a very major concept throughout the New Testament, but it's referring to the fulfilling of all the promises that start with what Hebrews 13 calls the, uh, the eternal covenant, okay? All the covenants uh, fold, continue into one eternal covenant. So uh, we've talked a lot about that, and I can't go into that that much. So let's look at this phrase, the promise from the New Testament. This has been a growing theme for me. Uh, frankly, I kind of started, stumbled on this accidentally qu quite some years ago, I guess maybe starting in the 80s, when uh, we, were, we put together a series of teachings about the, about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, a controversial subject to some today. And um, we uh, wanted to, you know, like uh, a traditional response of many Pentecostals has been, well, it's better that you felt than tell. In other words, well, I can't explain it. You just got to know it or sense it. And so what, you know, we have done is put together some very, thorough, comprehensive teachings on why the Spirit's gifts are still for today and why they're important for today and so forth. So in doing that, um, we had a section called uh, The Promise, and it, uh, we stressed that it was God's promise for every believer. And the more I looked at the word promise, the more I realized that there were all these promises in the Old Testament and New that were actually one continual theme. And so let's look at that a little bit. Uh, Luke 24, 49, we already alluded to that in Jesus' second encounter. with uh, in, in his first two encounters, or second and third encounter in, in, in Luke, uh, he tells them, uh, the second encounter, the two of the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 27, it says that he uh, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and explained everything concerning himself in the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets was a way, one way that Israelites looked at what we would call the Old Testament today, which should better be called the Jewish scriptures, because what we call the Old Testament really started in the book of Exodus, God made covenant, and so uh, Genesis and the first half of Exodus really aren't in the Old Covenant, they're building up to what we call the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, so I, I prefer to call that the Jewish scriptures. But um, Jesus opens their mind to understand that everything in the law and everything in the prophets. Now, the prophets today, we mean the major and minor prophets. But to a Hebrew-minded person, they meant all, the books from Joshua all the way to Malachi. They meant all the books except the books of Moses. Okay, so he says, and then in um, his the next encounter, the third encounter of the day, uh, in Luke 24, 44, it says that he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures and that he, uh, and he uh, revealed everything concerning himself in the law, 
the Psalms and the prophets. And the Psalms was a way of saying what we would call the wisdom literature today. He wasn't just referring to the book of Psalms, but to Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Proverbs. So both passages really mean that Jesus helped them understand that everything in the entire Old Testament or the entire Jewish scriptures concerns him, every single line of it. And so uh, that is a key. I always hear young Christians say, well, I don't like reading the Old Testament that much. And, and, and you know, so that's why we've done dozens and dozens of teachings, both John and I, that are on our podcast about how to see Christ all through the Old Testament. Because uh, the Old Testament should be very exciting to you if you want to know Christ. So anyway, in that context, when Jesus is in the upper room, he says, and behold, I'm sending the promise the Greek word epineglia, uh, of my father upon you. Some of you will uh, recognize that it's uh, the same root as in euangelion, uh, evangelism. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The NET uses the phrase, what my father has promised. Uh, some translations say the promise of the father, uh, and, and so forth. But... Uh, uh, in Acts 1, 4 through 5, which is Luke's other account of the same uh, speech, Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem uh, for what the Father has promised, which he said of, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The promise of the Father is the phrase in the ESV, New King James, Revised Standard, etc., what the Father has promised is the New American Standards way of, of translating. So this Greek word, epineglia, uh, is an announcement, a pledge, especially a divine promise, message, the act of promising, a promise given to or given. It's basically a covenant proclamation. All covenants have promises uh, that can only be fulfilled by, co- by God. If you notice, part of the point of all the covenants of the Bible is that there are uh, commandments in every covenant. You know, a lot of covenant theologians will say that the Adamic covenant was a covenant of works and all the others are covenants of grace and so forth. Not so. All covenants are covenants of grace. It was God's grace that he created Adam in the first place. It was God's grace that he entered into relationship and it was God's grace that he granted him a covenant. And all covenants have requirements for obedience in they have sanctions of blessings for obedience and sanctions of chastisements for disobedience. So the chastisement of the, act, uh, the Adamic covenant, the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. The day you eat it from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So um, a point of all the covenants in the Bible up until the covenant that Christ uh, gave us the new covenant, the better covenant, as we're going to look at today, if we get that far, I hope. Uh, the uh, I'm going to take this off. It's too warm. The um, All covenants, uh, up until then, the God makes covenant with his people because he's always intended. He's never calling. We have a radically individualistic Christianity today, but God is always calling people into community and to a covenant people that live under his lordship to show forth his glory and mediate his presence to the world around and represent his ways and his laws and, and so forth. 
and, uh, and, and be ministers of his reconciliation. That has always been what all the people of God have always been called to. But the point is, is that time after time after time, the, like Adam did, like Noah did, like Abraham did, the, the people of God fail. Because God had ordained that, and that doesn't abrogate the covenant or negate the covenant, and no new covenant, as, as Paul makes clear in Colossians, no new covenant takes away any of the provisions of the old covenant. You can't add or subtract to it. So it's so God can only roll out a new covenant when he fulfills the former covenant. And he fulfills it in himself, as we're going to see. All right. Now, these verses in, in Acts 1 are very important because they're kind of a smoking gun for the concept called being baptized in the Holy Spirit and that it's one and the same as the promises of God. Because he says not to leave Jerusalem. In other words, you're actually not supposed to go out and minister until you receive power from on high. Now, what I think is that a lot of God's best people who love God, but because we're in a time uh, where, where it's more proof text instead of systematic theology and systematic studies and systematic theology trumps is ruling over biblical theology, but biblical theology needs to inform systematic theology. And because we're kind of in a time of great darkness in the church, uh, there's not a whole lot of people who would, who would understand what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or so forth. And we're not going to get into that that much today, but we'll touch on it. Um, Jesus tells them, though, not to go and minister till they receive the power. And I believe that the vast, vast majority of God's people are actually in rebellion to this verse without knowing it. I don't uh, think they're rebellion in the sense of, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, God. I think they're just ignorant of what, of what, that God wants to bring a whole kind of power of the Holy Spirit into your life to equip you to do the proclamation of the kingdom of God. So when he says uh, to wait until you receive the promise of the Father, he then defines what he means by it. He says for, whenever you see for, it's always restating what was there just before. I always say when you see a for or a therefore, find out what it's there for. It's therefore what previous received. You know, in Romans 12, when he says, therefore, as a result of the mercies of God, present your body a living and holy sacrifice, the therefore refers to the first 11 chapters of Romans. As a result of everything I just said, you need to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice to God based on the gospel I just proclaimed in the first 11 chapters. That's why it's therefore. So a for or therefore always redefines or explains what you just read. So when he says to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, he then defines what it is. For John baptized in water. Good enough. But you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now that phrase, baptized in the Holy Spirit, appears seven times in the New Testament. And it always means the same thing as the fulfillment of all the promises of God, Old Testament and New. It's the culmination. It's the climax. It's the final uh, finishing of the, of the building. It's, it's, it's a very important thing. That's why... Uh, a majority of the spiritual warfare that the church faces is to try to keep it powerless. 
That's what the enemy wants to do, keep people uh, from stepping into the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as long as he can do that, as long as he can say, oh, you don't want to be too experience-oriented, um, then, then he can keep our faith just a, an abstract conceptual faith that we don't really practice uh, as fully as, as we could and keep it kind of in the theoretical instead of in the powerful, in the concrete, in the real. So this, this uh, what we're talking about today, follow me as we go, it, it's uh, very important. Now, this word epigenalia is used 54 times in 50 verses in the New American Standard Version of the Greek Concordance. Uh, I can't go into the, the Nestle Almond text versus the United Bible Society text versus the Stephens text and so forth. So it appears one less time in the text that the King James is based on and two less times in the King in the text that the Holman Christian Standard Bible is based on. But in all, te whatever text, uh, if you'd study the whole concept of all the Greek texts and so forth, in, it all, they all come down to 52 to 54 times this word is, is in the New Testament. So it's not some minor concept. Okay. Now, here are some of them. In Ephesians 1, 13... 13 and 14, a, a very misunderstood verse today. But, and by the way, just to clarify, if anybody's new and they don't know our position, we believe that you receive the Holy Spirit when you receive Christ. When you're regenerated, when your spirit is quickened, when you are born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. But we believe there is a subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit as, uh, and a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit that in a sense is just a greater release of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that every Christian needs. And we believe the New Testament makes that very clear if you, if you study the wording thoroughly enough. So, Ephesians 1.13, uh, again, in the cessationist viewpoint and, the, and what's called the third way, there's three major branches of thinking about this promise of the Father idea today. There's a cessationist viewpoint that says the, the promise and the gifts of the Spirit and these things stopped with the apostles. Um, there's um, the charismatic or Pentecostal view that there is this second experience and, and Christ continues. It's called the continuationist view. And that Christ's ministry continues one and the same and he still pours out the Holy Spirit throughout the centuries in the same way as he did in the, in the New Testament church. And then there's kind of a... Uh, those were kind of very radically opposed views up until about the mid-1980s. And then a, a third view that some people call the third wave view has, has emerged since the 1980s that says, well, God can still heal today and people still speak in tongues and people still cast out demons, but it would be wrong to think about it and, and pay attention to it and focus on that. Uh, unfortunately, as 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 tell us five times to pursue the spiritual gifts. So, um, so, the, the average interpretation of this today is that this is talking about when you received Christ in your conver conversion. And again, we want to we make clear, we believe that you received the Holy Spirit when you received Christ. But I don't believe this is what Paul is talking about here. He says, in him, Christ, you also notice the word after, after listening to the message of the truth. Remember, Romans 10 talks about how can they believe unless they hear how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can they preach unless someone is sent? And if you don't feel sent, come up after church. We'll lay hands on you and kick you in the rear and we'll send you. Because uh, you're sent. <laughs> and uh, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, another Greek, uh, Greek has seven past tense, having also believed, 
which happened after they listened, but before the next step, then you are sealed in him in the Holy Spirit of promise. If you look at all the Greek tenses correctly, you'll see that that is three steps. They heard it, they received, the, they believed it, and then they were sealed in the Holy Spirit of promise, which is again that word epidemiaglia, who is given as a pledge or a down payment, a guarantee, or an earnest money. It could be translated all of those, but if any of you who deal with legal contracts or have ever bought a house or, uh, you know, I always tell young ladies, if when, when the guy proposes, uh, before you answer, say, let me see that ring. <laughs> Because uh, because it's a pledge, it's a down payment. It's supposed to be rare and valuable and say, I'm a good provider. I've got a good vocational direction. Uh, it's supposed to be, say, I'm a man of my word and I'm serious about this. Because betrothal wasn't just what we, you know, we don't treat covenants as very important in our whole culture today. They say that, you know, Seven out of ten people who walk down the aisle now will end up divorced. Our, our divorce rate has reached 50%, but it's lower among older people. So now, you know, people of the millennial generation, seven out of ten that are walking down the aisle will end up divorced. That doesn't speak well of our understanding of pledges, down payments, and, and other covenant concepts. Um, so you are given this uh, Holy Spirit of promise as a, as, as a down payment. Hebrews calls it a foretaste of the powers of the age to come. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.5 5 says that we were given the Holy Spirit as a pledge or a guarantee of a better covenant. Luke 11, 11 through 13, Jesus says, How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And it's in the context of talking to sons and daughters. It's only something you can ask for when you're already a son or a daughter, if you look at the wording closely. So, Acts 2, 33, 37 and 39 Verse 33 says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. Now, that's an important thing because John says the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, what's interesting is when that phrase, the spirit was not yet given you, if you really study it out, you have to think like, what? A lot of people will say, um, well, in the Old Testament, uh, people, the spirit came upon people in the New Testament he, and he fills them. Well, the problem is the languages of the language of the Old Testament doesn't bear that out to be true. Over and over and over again, there are many passages in the Old Testament that say the Spirit came upon people, but there are also many passages that says the Spirit of God filled them. So, and in the Old Testament, uh, they you know they prophesied, they um, they healed the sick, they raised the dead, they. Uh, made the sun stand still for 10 hours by the power of the Holy Spirit, etc. So what, how can we say the Spirit is not yet given because Jesus is not yet glorified? Okay, and what we're going to see as we go through these verses today is because Jesus was the guarantor of a better covenant, and what he gave at Pentecost was something much greater than what we see in the ministry of Moses and Elijah. So how can the church expect less today? Almost all Christians expect less than casting out demons, less than healing the sick, less than prophesying, less than speaking in tongues, less than raising the dead. But we, that's not defendable biblically. That just comes out of, these, of, the, 
uh, culture of the Enlightenment and the pseudoscientific, rational, skeptical culture that Western culture has become. And that's why even missionaries who are from traditions that, that in, a, in America teach against the spirits from being, you know, you know, the things of the spirit being for today, when they're in Africa and South America and so forth, they cast out demons, raise the dead, <laughs> seek in tongues, prophesy, and then they just don't tell their people they're raising money from about it when they come back to America. Because they don't have the layers of unbelief in their culture. Now, um, the, this, this phrase, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. It, the, you know, if, you know I always, people always say, well, I got all the Holy Spirit there was to get when I believed. I always say, if you got it all, let's see it all. He's saying you poured out, you, he poured out what you can see, hear, and hear. Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound thereof, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. The activity of the Spirit uh, rolls into some Greek words that we're, uh, we're not going to look at, like phanareo and stuff, but it has to be made manifest. The gifts of the Spirit need to be made manifest. So, now, uh, so uh, again, this whole idea of the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The, receiving the Spirit in the, in the way that they received it in Pentecost and the effects that it had, not only did they all speak in tongues, but they went from cowering in an upper room. They didn't stand up and give an invitation. They stood up and gave a proclamation. Jesus is Lord. God has made manifest that Jesus is the... Peter, in his speech, said that this is the promise of Joel, and he quotes Joel 2.28 through 31, that your sons and daughters will prophesy that you're, and so forth, and that I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Uh, and that in, in essence, the, what, you know, when, you, when people ask, well, what is this greater promise? What is Pentecost? Number one, in the Old Testament, the filling of the spirit was more occasional, and it was on prophets, Priest, start should have listed priest first because Aaron. Uh, well, Moses, prophets, priests, uh, kings, and judges. Um, in the new covenant, all God's people are prophets. That's why Moses actually prophesies when it says the Lord took of the Spirit of God and distributed it among the seventy elders, and they all prophesied. And Aaron and Moses, Aaron and uh, Miriam were jealous for him and tried to stop it. Very similar to when the disciples said to Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons, but they don't travel with us. <laughs> you know, we, so we tried to stop him. So Moses and Aaron, you know, Moses and Miriam, or Aaron and Miriam tried to stop it. And Moses prophesies the new covenant when he says, I, I would that all God's people were are prophets, because that's exactly what God intends at Pentecost, that all God's people would speak prophetically by the power of the Holy Spirit, the words of God, as a proclamation and a demonstration of the kingdom of God. That's uh, not exactly an invitation. It's more of an announcement. Um, now, 
Verse 37, when he heard this, they were pierced to the heart. What, when they heard what? When they heard that God made manifest that Jesus is the Lord, all Hebrews in his day were expecting Yahweh, God with us, the Lord, to, to be manifest. And they were expecting Christos or Messiah. They weren't necessarily expecting that to be one and the same person. They had expectations that he would throw out the Romans and establish a political kingdom and so forth, much like the eschatology of today, that God will, you know, the world will get darker and darker and darker, and then God will come back and geopolitically force the kingdom on everyone instead of converting hearts and, and having the kingdom spread like a mustard seed until it fills all the nations, which is more the biblical view. Um, so, you know... When they hear that whole message, they say, what should we do? And Peter tells them three clear steps. Repent, uh, which is if you study all the things, confessing sins, repenting, faith, uh, if you want to capsulize that all into one thing, repenting is turning away from self-determination and unbelief and turning toward faith and pursuing God and so forth. So in, in a sense, he says, be born again. Uh, you know, become a new creature. Turn from your from death and spiritual death and darkness and receive the light of Christ and the life of Christ. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, water baptism, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the epignaglia, is for you and your children and for all who are far out. Oh, that was how he used to say it in the 70s. Um, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. It's not for one geographical people place. It's not for one kind of people. It's for as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. There's no time tags on these verses or until the canon of the scripture is written or any such nonsense. Now, uh, Acts 13, when they're preaching, they say that from the descendants or the seed of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Right? Because they're recounting Israel's history. And the, the promise to Abraham was that in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the promise to David was that I, from your seed, one shall always reign on your throne. And all of these promises were about Christ. Okay, so he they're saying, you're... From the descent seed of this man, according to his promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior. Then in verse 32, we preach, or which means uh, announce, herald, proclaim, doesn't mean a religious thing where you breathe like preachers go, oh, God, and run around in a suit and tie and, and uh, from the pulpit and speak only to Christians. And then we call that a revival. We're, we're, we're proclaiming to the outside world uh, the promises made to the Father are fulfilled in Christ. And you don't have to wear a suit to do that, nor do it in a church. 2 Corinthians 1.20, flipping over, there's a bunch of verses. If you want to study this first, I try to, as much as possible, use up the full, everything I can fit on front and back of a page. That's my standard MO. A bunch of verses there at the bottom that you can look up for yourself, and I think you would be very blessed if you do so. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For as many... It doesn't say, and a few of the promises, or most of the promises. Every one of the promises of God, the epineglia uh, of God, in him they are yes, and therefore also through him is our so be it, amen means so be it, 
to the glory of God through us. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If you're, By the way, if you're ever lacking zeal in your faith, and you're lacking gratitude, and you're, you don't break down crying when you're spending time with the Lord, and in thanksgiving and praise, and, and you're kind of, frankly, a dullard or whatever, read Ephesians 2 as one chapter in one thought. Because what we do is we make Ephesians 2, 1 through 11, one thing, and then Ephesians 2, 12 through 21, another. And so we interpret Ephesians 2, 1 through 11 as this radically individualistic gospel about how I got saved and I got justified. And uh, I hear all the time, Christians, this is, this is a regular pastoral event for me, Christians who are telling me, I'm going, to, I'm going to stay a Christian while I leave the church and go my own way and do my own thing, but God will go with me. <laughs> I hear that all, all the time, every week. Sometimes from people who manifestly are struggling for whether or not they're actually going to make Jesus Lord, and that's a very clear battle in their life every day. But God just doesn't go with you according to your terms where you want. You can't find the church of your choice. You have to find the church of his choice. <laughs> if he doesn't want you in this church, then you shouldn't be in this church. He, you, he should be it, where God wants you to be. Now, I believe he'll confirm that through the leadership of your church and through the Holy Spirit and through the scriptures, and, and you should go where the vision is more scriptural and more challenging. And don't go where you find a church that you feel comfortable with. Even though we have padded pews, I'm thinking about putting like spikes in them so they'll prick you. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying, follow me and I'll make you comfortable? I don't think he ever said anything like that. You know, those, that, that thing about the cross, that, it just doesn't seem that comfortable from what I've read about it. All right, so, uh, so when, you, when you read Ephesians 2, understand it in a corporate context and understand that you were grafted into the people of God. And when you get that, when, when, you know, for by grace you have been saved through faith, it is not of your, the result of yourself, and Ephesians 2, 8, and all that stuff. If you put it all together with, with the rest of Ephesians 2, you'll begin to say, oh my God, I was without hope and without God in this world. I was locked in this little world of my own thoughts and my own minds with not any ability to spiritually fellowship with God, his people, or anyone else. I was trapped in my own little world. In a world of my, uh, that was created by sin and fantasies, and was, was, I was living an illusion and a lie. If you begin to understand what, what's happened to you when you in Christ, you cannot but fall down and weep and thank God that you've been made part of the, of the people of God. All right, now, shoot. What, where's that clock? I'm going to shoot that thing one of these times. But um, part B, the promises fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus are stated in many alternate ways. Uh, I'm out of time, so I'm going to go real quick here. In Matthew 3, uh, that phrase that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and water is, is quoted seven times in the, in the New Testament. 
four times in the Gospels, in, in John's account of in the Gospels account of John the Baptist and meaning Christ, twice when they're re- reiterating John the Baptist and once in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Acts eleven sixteen says, I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Now this is in the context of what happened to Cornelius and the Gentiles. And he goes back to the Jews and they take exception with him uh, that he had you know, gone to a Gentile's house and proclaimed the kingdom. And they had not only, they had not only got baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues, but they had uh, they had uh, accepted them as candidates for the covenant transaction called water baptism, and that meaning you are full members of our family and in, in, uh, the kingdom of God, and so forth. And these guys were upset about it because that was the main reason God always judged Israel is they didn't they were all of Israel had was like Jonah constantly. They didn't want to proclaim the gospel to the Ninevites and let, because they were afraid the Ninevites would repent. That's the history of Israel in a nutshell. And that's the attitude of the Jews in the New Testament days. And that's why it took the vision of the Holy Spirit that, that Peter saw in, in, the, in Acts 10 to help him see what the Old Testament had been saying all along in hundreds of passages. And what Jesus had clearly taught in Luke 4 in his very first speech. So, I wish I could, you know, Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the guarantee of a better covenant. I can't develop that because I want to keep going. The, uh, look at point C. The promise is a major interpretive theme of the Jewish scriptures. You see it in the, the first promise called the Proto-Evangel in Genesis 3. You see it in the calling of Abraham. It is repeated three times to Abraham, and it is repeated to Isaac and Jacob. Wish I could develop all this more. You should develop for yourself. Uh, the promise in Acts 19 that you'll be my people as, if you indeed hear my voice and obey my voice, you'll be my special people, my possession. That is quoted to the church in 1 Peter 2, 9, word for word. People say, well, the things of, that are about Israel don't have, that's part of a, an idea called dispensationalism, which is kind of a modern way of looking at Scripture that was developed in the late 1800s and is very, very, very popular in the, among evangelicals today, about over 90% follow these kind of paradigms and that the promises to Israel don't, have anything to do with the church and so forth, that's nonsense. They're clearly repeated to the church over and over. This Exodus 19, 5 through 6, is repeated word for word regarding the church in 1 Peter 2, 9. So these promises is what they're announcing throughout the New Testament. They're announcing that these promises of the Old Testament, perhaps the most important one that I want to get to, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Now, we've already mentioned Joel 2.28 and 2.29, which is quoted by Peter in Acts 2 when he's explaining what the speaking in tongues was all about. But in Joel 31, 31 through 34, this is very important. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is what happens in the ministry of Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glorification, coronation, and the out in the... The manifest witness of his coronation is the whenever a king is coronated, the oil pours down his head, down his beard, into the, where he's going to reign below. So the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit stopped pouring when the apostles died and so forth, then Jesus would stop being king. It's still pouring. Whenever God does something, it 
it's an ongoing thing unless he gives it limits. So when he said, let there be light, for instance, it's amazing that Christians didn't lead the way to discovering that the galaxies are still unfolding because when God says, let there be light, the Hebrew means, let there be light, 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 and it's still going to go until he says it's enough light, which there's no indication in the Bible he's ever going to say, so the galaxies and the stars will keep unfolding. And you'll probably reign over a few galaxies. That's your side job. So... Uh, why do you think he's preparing you now? So this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. The declares the Lord, I'll put my law within them and on their heart I'll write it and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I'll forgive their iniquity and their sins. Now there's lots in here. One is that, you know, that we've taught about how it's forgiveness of sins and it's way more than forgiveness of sins. Uh, we've talked about uh, the priesthood of all believers, a very, very, very important concept worth fighting and dying for. Uh, that, and we've taught on that for several weeks at, at the Tuesday night Bible studies at Wright State. Um, but this thing that I'll put my law within them, Jesus said in Matthew 5, I don't think I came to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And the Greek means to put it into force. Because you could never do the law by your own performance base. That's what the Jews constantly said. That's why Paul said, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, because not knowing about God's righteousness, they did not subject themselves to God's righteousness, but pursued it as if it was by works or performance base, instead of receiving it by grace. As Abraham had, as David had, had, all the Old Testament saints were never saved by doing the law. They were saved by faith in the character of God and the promises of God. They were now saved by faith in the same thing, except the, the one key promise of the atonement has, is in the past for us and was in the future for them. That's the only difference. And he writes his law upon our heart and upon our mind. That's why Pentecost was on Pentecost. Because Pentecost happens on the day in the Feast of Weeks when, um, or I always get my Feast of Booths and Feast of Weeks backward, and the day when uh, they celebrated Moses bringing the Ten Commandments down Mount Sinai and making the covenant that we just read in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. That is what, was, that is what Pentecost was the celebration of. And the baptism in the Spirit is the ultimate writing of God's law upon your heart and upon your mind and the empowering of you to do it and to live it. It's the, it's the answer to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, as he draws you, begins to give you a hunger and thirst for righteousness. As you're born again, you get that. But God also wants to empower you to, to live it. And the baptism in the Spirit is a big tool of grace toward living that among other tools of grace. It's not the only one. So um, I'm out of time, so I'm just going to have to say, and here with point, uh, point C and D, is that Pentecost is the sign of the ascension, the glorification, and the coronation of Christ. We've said that already. That's what it means when it says the Spirit was not yet given, because the, the Holy Spirit was given throughout all the Bible, but he was given in some much greater way 
in the book of Acts. And I think the greater way includes everyone is to be a priest and a prophet. Everyone is to be filled with the power. Everyone is enabled to speak in tongues. Everyone can prophesy. Everyone can be used in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, most of the church is ignorant to this, but God is willing to give this to everyone. So now, the whole cessationist idea, I, I want to I say this uh, with love. It, I actually believe it actually crosses over to, to a concept called a heresy. I wish I had time to develop that. But it's, it's the enemy of the kingdom of God. It's the enemy of the purposes of God. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. The, the enemy wars against you walking in, living in, and us walking in, and living in the power of God's Holy Spirit. And if it doesn't look like the ministry of Jesus, and if it doesn't look like the ministry of the apostles, then it's not what God intended uh, in the promises of the new covenant. Amen.